we were still learning. That was the first time around. So somewhere between the 80s and the mid-90s, my hair went from black to white. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that was a tough one. I was at Lehman Brothers well, when we were well, up by Amex. So that was a tough one. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. For this episode of our podcast, we present an excerpt from our weekly wrap with our co-head of investment grade research, Aaron Lyons, and our head of high yield strategy and co-founder, Glenn Reynolds. This oral history of the credit marks is extended to nearly 45 minutes, so we've broken it into two parts, and this is part two. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. Our team of nearly 100 analysts publishes content to more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. Please enjoy part two of the weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons and Glenn Reynolds. We don't think the inflation boogeyman is going to get them this time. When it's real, it's real. That's because we look back at the things like the misery index. The guys who are in the Fed and in the FOMC, the senior guys there over the last 10 years, and even now, most of them either cut their academic teeth doing you know, dissertations on various things about inflation and how the different curve and the monetary policy backdrops would flow through. Uh, and some were professors, so they live and die on those 70s and early 80s periods in terms of how their mindset works. But we don't think it's going to happen this time because we don't think the inflation that's that great with that many people unemployed. Utilization's tight, but nowhere near where it typically is when you start to see a lot flowing through. Commodities are up, so it's going to get tested this year. So we, you know, that's for our economists to decide, but I look at it and I, I look at the past and I go, I don't see that undermining risk appetites. If you go another 100 basis points higher on the long, long end, you're back where you were in, say, 2013, when stocks had their best year of the cycle until 2020, and high yield was distinctly positive because it's very strong fundamental underpinning that causes that steepening. So we, I'm not that worried about it, and I think there's plenty of history to point to why. And we're also early cycle, which makes a world of difference in tightening cycles. Right. And I think just looking at the performance of IG this year has been kind of proof of that point where spreads have barely moved and you've had 70 basis point moves at the back end of the curve. So you're definitely seeing it in the IG space. All right. Slide 15 is another one I thought was pretty interesting. And I think many of us who are, quote, newer to credit forget that this was happening way back when. And I'll note that my career starts with the TMT bubble, so I'm good from that point on. But what was going on and what led to the levels we had in the early 80s? How do we get out of it? And do you see any similarities now? Well, it was mad. It was mad tightening. I mean, excuse me, mad easing by, uh, by Greenspan. Greenspan took the helm in 87, and he just went wild uh, easing. And, you know, they say he saved the bank system, and there was a slew of bank mergers. That That's really more on, on the... On, on the earliest chart with Fed funds. But what you ended up with was just a real strong shoot out of the gates into 92, 93. Appetites were really picking up again. We, we used to call that the class of 92, the, you know, whether it be the Drexel, you know, kind of diaspora that moved to DLJ or different banks. That was the restart of the high yield business in 92 in a big way. Everybody. Oh, was, sorry, Glenn, I'm looking at GC15. I'm looking yeah. at like the 79 and 80s. Oh, sorry. I'm looking at my own slide pack. It's, that's oh, you sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm back. Oh, that. This thing. Yeah. This. This. Sorry. Yeah. Back when I was a baby. Yeah. Okay. What that, was happening? That. Oh. I was just yeah, telling I, you. I was just telling you. My my parents talk about how they were buying treasury bonds at 13, 14 percent when they oh, were Oh yeah. Babies. No. It was, I I use this as a, as a as a good way to um, 
visually start the ball rolling for people on on what that what what history looked like because this was the start of, of the bull market in uh, in bonds and it was you know pretty radical you had you know 16% five year treasury 17 month three month 70% three month bills you know i had like i said i told you earlier i had a prime a prime loan at 23% so it was it was ugly and that was just volcker going wild he went i mean volcker was 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 very hardcore and he he was going to break inflation, and, and he did it by just locking in. We have another slide on that. He was locking in on the monetary aggregates and not targeting Fed funds. He let Fed funds swing quite a bit. But, you know, we basically, you know, he took the grape squeezer out on, on the system. And, and you know, what, I, was, what was causing the problem. inflation? Oh, uh, what was you know, that, driving all the inflation back then? If, if you were around back then reading this, uh, everyone knew that inflation was absolutely one thing or absolutely another thing. That was the monetarist versus the, uh, you know, for, to put it in you know entry level econ terms, the cost push crowd, but a lot of it was it was spirals of cost of living clauses, and they called these called the wage price spiral. The main thing was wage price spirals and oil. Oil went from the early 70s with all the Mid East you know disarray into being like you know an extraordinary significant multiples multiple times over in terms of the price of oil because of Mid Mid East oil embargoes and 74 like I think we had all even license plate days to even get gas in your tank and there was all these crazy things going on in the 70s and 75 low then stagflation kicked back in later with 79 that I with Iran so there was all these things going on in the oil front but also the labor markets were being dislocated you know probably just under half of labor contracts had COLA provisions so once the cost of living goes up the wages kick higher the prices kick higher from the high those who hire that labor pool, and that created this this mad effect throughout the 70s. It's a simple, that's a really simple way to look at it. But uh, people still debate what caused inflation. I mean, like I think, like I said in a piece recently, professors come and go, and you know, you go down to one end of the hall, the guy who's giving you the monetarist lectures, wearing a blazer. Then the other end of the hall, the guy's wearing a beret, and he's giving you the opposite version. And you know, they're both <laughs> dead and buried, and the argument's still going on. So, but you know, usually it's things like oil labor, food, and how that spirals into expectations for either pay or, or pricing. So, you know, people got all remembered from 08, if oil goes to 145, the price of milk goes up a lot. So that means it, these things reverberate through the system. And it, and it was done in a way where there's also a lot of structural change and deregulation unfolding in the late 70s, early 80s. So it was brutal. Uh, so he broke it and he won. And by 86, you know, we're at 1% CPI. And then we started a more modern market dynamic around monetary policy and Fed Fed funds targeting as opposed to, you know, money supply aggregates. I mean, we'd sit around at Lehman Brothers and wait for the economists to go over the hoot and holler on what the what the M1, M2, M3 numbers meant. Uh, I felt like, you know, I was finally going to pay back on those econ courses. Uh, but that was what that was what they were doing in the 80s. And then that was gone and it's much more transparent. And, you know, Fed Fed funds is, is, is the vehicle and highly visible Fed funds targeting. Okay, so let's come to a question. The Fed and inflation and AIT. Is the Fed really willing to let inflation overshoot and then slam on the brakes to bring it down, as the average inflation targeting theory suggests? Or will the Fed say, never mind, once inflation essentially gets to its target? Good question. They're going to get... They're going to get a, a road test, presumably sooner rather than later, if if we get to the the, the point in the cycle where we expect to be by year end. If, if we don't get to that point, well, equity is going to get crushed and spreads are going to widen. But we're highly confident that that fundamental outlook will play out. So we think they will, because I, you know they said they will, and 
I think they're really jumping up and down about the politics of jobs. And you have, you know, yelling in the seat. Clearly, you know, the priority for the 22 elections is going to be jobs and money in people's pockets and everything else be damned. So if the Fed does, and they're going to, you know, they're going to have to, you know, the Fed's going to have to sit back and say, is three the number or three and a half the number that will worry me? If you're at two and a half, 275, they're supposed to let it ride, right? Just looking at the averages. And they, they're not really entirely clear on what that, the the average time horizon is and to what extent it's forward looking or, or backward looking because inflation has been very low. We'll see. Okay. I mean, it's, it's it's like a spectator sport now. It's like everyone has an opinion <laughs> on it. But I, 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 I think I think they will this time because of the pandemic and that will be their excuse so they don't get you know defrocked of their PhDs. So they'll say, no, it, it's a special situation. Although, Glenn, as you're talking, I'm looking at the Bloomberg top stories. And number six is ships divert from canal. Inflation risks emerge. So now we got to stack ships. So there's your inflation again. <laughs> We're yeah, going to have inflation. You know, it's, it's the topic is zero. That's why we did all these slides, right? So, you know, yeah. everyone wants to talk about it right now because there's not a whole lot of fundamental problems right now to talk about. Those won't be a fundamental you know, headline until we get on towards you know summer travel and you know the spring spring selling seasons in various industries, you know if the fundamentals disappoint, that will be back in the headlines. And for credit, yep. that's a lot more important than whether the inflation goes to two one in my view, you know, or two right. two five even because we've been well, there plenty of times before. Something you and I pointed out with the fourth quarter earnings is that we saw revenue up about two to three percent in the fourth quarter 2020, and that was versus a pre-COVID comp right so it things were things are percolating and moving along a lot of people argue about the measurement of it it's you know you read the bear the bear rags over the years and every time inflation doesn't agree with their bearish outlook it's because that they measure it wrong but going ahead they're going to say well okay never mind we like it now because it's fitting my bearish outlook because you know how do you measure these one-time shocks and readjustments but if you yeah. if you put five more people in the work roles, do they suddenly overnight have labor pricing power? And if it's a legislated locally minimum wage hike, how, is that part of a supply demand spiral or, a, or just a legislated step up? And how do you consider that? Because it still comes down to pricing power and whether or not McDonald's is going to uh, you know flow through the the price into into right. the burger, uh, and it's yeah you know, whether or not it flows into the cars because cars right now inflate every year it seems, but then there's a secular shift to new cars. So is the cost of mobility going to be higher or lower? And there'll be all these refined discussions to have. Just because you, 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 if you hit a three, three and a half percent, you'll be where you were right at the tail end of the TMT cycle when the market was unraveling. So, right. you know, will the Fed tighten then? Probably. You know, call me when we get there is like the old expression. All right. Let's go to another time period that I liked looking at. This is on my slide 18. Yes, the the CPI plunge. So 1986, it's the year I went to the Mets Red Sox World Series in New you York. You knew I was a Sox fan. You had to bring that up. Man. Well, I mean, that's pretty remarkable, Glenn. I was like a second grader in Iowa. That was a big trip. So other than it being the year the, before. I went to the 67 series versus the cards. So anyway, where are you? <laughs> um, Looking at just 1986, other than the year before the market crashed, like what was happening during this period that we show here? The CPI well, you know, Volcker won. This is, you know, Volcker got the, you know, got a couple of championship belts somewhere between, 
you know, 82 and 86. Everyone hated him in 82 and it hurt Reagan in the midterms because it was a deep recession, a double dip, but they won the battle. But also he had a crash in oil, oil plunged. That was a huge, huge source of pain in the oil patch because everyone thought oil was going to 100 and some of these companies had $10 a barrel in interest across. So wholesale slaughter in housing markets, jobs, banks collapsed, Texas, all those high rise, beautiful banks in Texas, you know, some of them rolled into a Bank of America and other places. I, I can't remember who all the takeovers were. You know, there was, there was, they were just all gone. MCorp collapsed at, by, at a lag in 88. So it was a mess. So it was that. Also, you had a, a very tough mini default wave in 86, which led to some, some easing as well, because there was a chance we were gonna, that was going to get flagged as a recession. So you had problems in, in fundamentals and you had plunging commodities. So all of that. And you also had a super, super strong dollar up till 85 when they did that Paris Agreement and all this stuff. So there were a lot of different things going on. The, the, the purchasing power of the dollar was, uh, was pretty high and you started to see the influx of imports cars from, from you know, the, the Toyotas were all over the roads and that, that led to a voluntary export restraints from, from Japan. There was a lot going on, but the main thing is plunging oil and bad fundamentals. And then inflation okay. kicked back in. In 88, oil multiplied like times two, well, I think it was, you know, because it went from like 10 to 11 to something in the mid-20s. And then the, then the, the market was cooking, 87 and 88 was super, super hot markets for credit risk. But you had a crash in 87 in October, the stock market yep. crash, which the credit market pushed right through and just kept on rolling. And then the Fed started to tighten a lot. Uh, and then lo and behold, by 89, the credit cycle was effectively over. And, you know, but even if the, uh, the recession didn't start till summer of 90, it was a mess. The Financial Institutions Reform Recovery and Enforcement Act, I somehow managed to commit that to memory, but that was blowing up the world. Broker dealers were having hung bridge loans. It was, it was a train wreck by 89. Okay. So let's go to the next period. I'm slide 21. We're up to 93, 94. What's going on here? 9394. Oh. So we saw like this pretty big shift in the curve. And you're looking at the, this is the mother of, like, we used to call it the mother of all bear, bear flatteners. The Fed completely ambushed. This is not, this, this is this is probably one of the events that led to a lot more transparency later because the market got completely taken by surprise. I was at Lehman Brothers, we were about to be spun off. And this was like a case study in pain for broker dealers because the carrot got crushed. And not only that, there was some, you know, a lot of disruptions in a lot of markets. This is where you saw. Some of the problems flare up in derivatives. Orange County came later, all that stuff. They tightened like crazy and the market couldn't take it. It was the, was the worst year set of the recovery in the 90s. So when people started talking about 2013 and comparing it to 94, back during the taper tantrum, it was like they didn't get the memo. There's, no, there's very little in common with what was going on in the ZERP market with the steepening. This was a flattening with the front end coming up, a bear flattening front end went up a lot more than the long end, but it was just pain all around. The only thing that got hurt was everything basically and for one year. Then the okay. following year, you, you had the best S&P 500 year of the, of the decade and high yield was smoking hot in 95, 96. We're at super tight spreads in 96 and the lows in 97. So the, 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 again, it gets back to that theory. It's not like, the, it's not steepening, it's tightening. And it's not stuff that makes sense fundamentally that's predictable, it's stuff that shocks and surprises. Uh, that's kind of one okay. of the themes, so. All right, so let's jump to slide 24. 1998 through 2004. What? Yeah, these are quite a bit. So what's going on yeah. here? This is starting to look more like what I know. <laughs> yeah, this was, uh, this is the TMT bubble, but uh, summer 98, you know, you had long-term capital, they, you know, the Fed didn't 
bail out, bail them out, but they forced them all into a conference room to sit down. This is, you know, stuff of legend now, but who was going to pony up money to bail out long-term capital? You also had Russia default in August. And then, you know, people don't like to talk about it anymore, but, you know, because Lehman was um, just a, a ton of rumors running around about Lehman. And a lot of it was ill-conceived because they had, they had put something, because they almost blew themselves up in, in theory and counterparty risk on CDS. And they had some other things going on in mortgages because that Which was also was really that? big. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it took them a while to actually blow it, blow the place up. But you know, they had a boat in Mexico in late '94, late '94, early '95, and then this was the second one. So there was a lot of whispering, and the Fed got in and they eased a little bit. But then they went. That this is the biggest test for today. Is this? Then all of a sudden, inflation starts going up. So you have Nasdaq up 86%, big bubble, because uh, clearly the credit cycle was starting to fade and send signals. You hit around 6% defaults by the fourth quarter, and the Fed just goes right back to tightening, right into 2000 and the March 2000 NASDAQ peak. So that's that thing about hard wiring. When you get to three handles, is that where they call timeout and they change they, they change from their dual mandate you know, team jobs to team inflation? And we'll see. But that's, that's a big question mark, because that's what they did there. And it just made everything worse. And by the time you got to 2001, that's when Greenspan, you know, you know, opened up the spigot and just said, let's just keep cutting to, to calm the nerves. So as, as great as he's done in, in the first go around and easing and, and bringing the saving the economy, this is what they say sowed the seeds for, for basically, you know, a housing bubble. Because technically, the broader real economy was not in bad shape at all. It was just all of the uh, underwriting excess, you know, IPOs, TMT, what will that mean for the household? It was very nebulous, but the economy was in pretty good shape. Those, they could say it was a coincident indicator and the, the economy wasn't that bad because he did this, or they can say he did it and he didn't have to because it was really more about trying to ease the stress of the world's worst origination cycle in the credit markets and the emerging markets. So, you know, that's the debate. That's the taste great, less feeling light beer commercial <laughs> and that will never end. I remember those commercials. Okay, another slide to look at that brings us more to recent history, slide 29. <clears throat> Which financial crisis? And I guess, you know, here we're seeing curves that look a little more similar to what we have now. What are your thoughts on kind of this post-financial crisis period? Yeah, I like this curve because these are all steep curves, right, in a desert market. So that has a lot of commonality with what's going on today. 2012, you had, um, you know, that was you know QE3, right? So there was things going on there. But 2008 was the crisis. And 2008, the crisis. And 2014, the first peak, you know, for high yield credit this cycle with, you know, the with the par triple C tier. I mean, that was a very bullish June 2014, right? That's the end of the year when things started to loosen up a bit too because of the, you know, the crash in oil. But if you look at this, 2009, that's coming out of, that's an early cycle steepening. Uh, risk appetite soared. And it was, you know, it was a reaction coming out of the crisis. So Big, big year for risk. 2013, very strong year for equities and a good year for high yield. You know, I think it was 7% handle returns where high grade was negative because of the duration hit. So though you look at those two years and somewhere in here, you're supposed to tell me where steep curves necessarily in a ZERP market are going to be bad for risk. You did it in 2008 to relieve risk. You did it in 2014, risk appetites were high. 2012 flowed into 2013 with, you know, super hot origination, record B, record triple C origination. So it's... You know, I understand mathematically why, you know, duration gets hit and also it can choke off and change the economics of certain kind of investments or mergers and things like that. There's a lot of reasons why steepening is intrinsically bad for math, but 
for risk appetites, it's not consistent with what we've seen in the past, especially in early cycle periods. So that's why I like this chart. That's why I put it in. It's just it is oh, a wow. steep and it's zerp. So it's all the same same general backdrop with mixed doses of QE. Sometimes the QE is over. Right. You know, sometimes it was on. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of commonality. And look how the markets did. Markets did well everywhere except 2008, which is why the QE and zerp was put in place to begin with. And we didn't get out of zerp till 2015 in December. Okay. I mean, if we could get back to that 2009 line. Yeah, 4%. It's pretty good. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the curves, you know, I, I think they've made it clear that ZERP's not changing anytime soon. QE might, but then you're talking about 2013. Right. right. Still elevated a lot from where we are. Okay, slide 31. Where That's we are it. right now. So yeah. what do you think happens this year? I think it's going to still be extraordinary demand for, for credit risk. It's tough, though. One of the charts we don't have in here is, you know, we, we put up fairly regularly is the amount of callable paper, you know, based on just the expiration of make holes, could be like $300 billion this year and $300 billion next year. You know, if using yield to worst and as the workout calendar year, you know, we're, you know, slightly lower, but it's lower. But the point is, that's a lot of room to lock in. If people have bearish views on the curve, meaning, you know, rates going to go up in that five-year could start to move higher, which is more typical of the past, where the five-year moves somewhat more like the 10-year. That's what people are, are kind of watching now for the high yield market and trying to gauge what the duration hit is to the total return on the high yield index. Uh, you know, you're still going to have a lot because these all-in coupons are still absurdly low. So, you know, you, you got to work with the curve you have. It's kind of like marching into battle with, you know, with the army you have or the field, the field of the team you have. This is the curve you have. It's low absolute terms, but it's steep. And if I'm a treasurer, I got a decision to make on move now or wait. And usually there's a debt capital markets guy out there saying you should move now, not only because my bonus will be better this year, but you know everyone's <laughs> talking about rates going higher. Yeah. So you, you got a lot. You got a lot of reason if you're a treasurer to to step into this, and if you're a new issuer, untested, to jump on and get in the bandwagon. Like Carvana was in the market today because it has a booming stock price. It's a small you know, use car dealer in theory, but it has a market cap about the size of Ford. So there's a lot of different things. If you're a if you're a company that has loans to clean up, to clear out some of the liens, this is the time to do it. So I, that's technically going to be difficult to manage to get spreads in a lot tighter if that continues. But that just means still the risk appetite's high. Steepness or right. no. I just think there's a lot of money that has to go someplace and everyone is looking at these same charts and trying to figure out you know, are you okay with one and a half to two percent on a treasury, or do you need to do whatever you can to get those extra, you know, hundred to three hundred basis points? Yeah, it's always a struggle when your, your your conclusion revolves around the you know least worst bad decision on relative <laughs> value. But that's yes. kind of where we are. But that's the like again, that's the that's the you know that's the curve you have and the yields you have to choose from. And a lot of people investing either just straight for income outright or for avoidance of duration hits. So everyone's chasing loans, but I don't think anyone's thinking that it's going to be a big floating rate, you know, boom coming up because there's zerp, but at the same time you avoid the hit and you also move up in the capital structure while you're at it. So loans are, are, are doing well for now. Yeah. They, they, they faded at the end of 13 also because people calmed down and the curve started to flatten again in, from the long end in 14. Could we see that next year if they get off the inflation kick? Maybe, you know, I wish I could say I was, I'm not a maniacal curve watcher, but I try to put it in the context of past cycles. And to me, steepness have not been poison for taking credit risk or for equities. 
because okay. of the reason that, that, that the curve is steepening. Pricing power for corporates and jobs. Yep. All right. I have five minutes left. And I wanted to ask you a couple quick questions. 20 years and I don't know, four or five months ago, you founded Credit Sites. What have some of your favorite memories been about founding the firm? What have some of the toughest moments been? And what are you most proud of? The, probably the fondest memories just doing it. I mean, maybe it's the oppositional personality, but people people gave us an over-under of about a you know, year and a half, if that, to, to, to live because we broke off right around the time NASDAQ was peaking. But that was one of the reasons why we thought the street could unbundle because all of a sudden you had this opening you know, online service economy that was going to be something you could jump on, jump onto. So we wanted to unbundle a so-called quote unquote street research firm and, you know, service not only traditional large institutional buy side clients, but also the small ones that you would not be allowed to really service as on the street because they didn't make that those companies, you know, that 95, five or 95% of your revenue, 5% of your clients. So we, we, we were going to be able to build a long customer base, but also sell to other banks and brokers. You know, you could sell to Goldman for the first time and so on if, if you're a Deutsche guy. So you know, it, it, it worked. It's a business model that's been proven now. Now it's this case of, you know, where does it go from here and, you know, what type of, you know, other products, you know, in the age of fintech and all these other areas and globalization, you know, what kind of regional presence can you grow? So there's a lot to do. So that's the best. The best is just get, getting it done in, in the first couple of years. Partly because everyone said you couldn't, it couldn't be done, but it, it made sense, and it's good to see that logic can prevail on economics. <laughs> so that's that's that was more of a you know you know for you know across the Irishman from Boston. I mean that that's enough if you prove the naysayers wrong. There's certain utility yeah. value in that by itself. Where disappointments is just trying to extend it into other areas. You know, back then everyone was talking about capital structure risk. We tried to move into equities a bit, and you know we were. We were retreating with Napoleon and the broken nickel buttons, you know, from Russia. So we, we, <laughs> we, we, got, we got crushed on that. It just didn't work. So we disbanded it very quickly. So that that that, that was that was a disappointment because like sometimes it's just you really got to get people who have the just the, the total commitment. And you know, it's not for everybody doing this kind of thing. Being an entrepreneur is not for anybody. But being an entrepreneur and a research grunt that really has to you know lace them up every day and do a lot of writing and reading. It's it's, it's a long grind. It's like going to school. But the good news is you get paid for it. So you know. <laughs> That's why I never uh, I think, did an MBA. <laughs> like, so, uh, you know, it's, been, it's, it's a proven model now. Now it's, now it's a space. And, you know, we, we took on all comers. The agencies came at us with products. Somebody said that one of the big agencies called Bank of America, and we went some guy, they said they're coming out with a credit sites killer. And, you know, I was feeling kind of cocky. And I said, tell them to bring a bigger boat. But, you know, <laughs> the, the idea is the agencies have done uh, extremely well in so many different product areas. So they just keep on reinvesting and growing. You know, so taking on big guys like the agencies and, and uh, you know, Morningstar and others, and then some private equity funded places like Soleil and others. You know, it was a battle. So you got to be willing to, to, to you know, lean in, lean on the wheel. It's not for everybody. So uh, it was good though. It's been a great, great 20 years. But then now we're, we'll be owned um, by a new company, and uh, you know, that just means it's a, it's a big boys battle now. I mean, Bloomberg's up on the Empire State Building, swatting planes, and the agencies are scaling the building. There's a lot of guys in the space now. It's getting to be a big boys game when you start getting into capex intensive tech things. So you know, but still, you know, independent research has its role. But it's at this point. Back then, it was good enough to be independent. Now you actually have to be useful, also. So <laughs> you got to up your game. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, I just want to say, Glenn, a huge thanks for all you've done for the firm and the markets. And it's always great to have you join us to share all of your experiences. So, Glenn, thanks so much. Virtual clap for you.
here. Um, Thanks for having me on to filibuster. That's poor people. I've listened to all this. this it's talk, always but. great. Just for listeners, we are off next week for the holidays. So happy holidays this weekend and next. And we'll be back on Friday, April 9th for our next weekly wrap. Thanks, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thanks. See you later. Thanks, Len. I hope you enjoyed part two of our weekly wrap. Please stay tuned for future episodes of our podcast. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com, or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.